0: Do you like birds? Do you like knowledge? Well, my friend, you find yourself in the right place. Welcome to Blurbs, a podcast about birds. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Matt, bird enthusiast from New Zealand. Let's get into it. loo ba-ba-da, ba-ba-doodaloo, loo ba ba da So far. We've focused episodes of the podcast on the surviving members of an ancient bird lineage, endangered species, and even a species that is possibly extinct, but where there's enough evidence to still hold out hope of its survival. Today, however, we will be focusing on a species that unfortunately is no longer with us, but one that deserves to be remembered for the amazing bird that it was. We will be talking about the extinct member of the New Zealand wattlebird family, the huia. Birds of the forest, black plumage with a blue-green iridescence, orange wattles at the base of a cream-coloured bill, twelve tail feathers with white tips, a total length of just under half a metre, largely insectivorous, poor flyers preferring to bound their way around, and calling with a flute-like sound. These were the general physical and behavioural traits of the huia. The most striking trait that set these birds apart, however, were their beaks. We will look into the differences and what factors contributed to their formation later in the episode. But first, let's talk about their previous distribution and factors that led to their extinction. Prior to human settlement, Evidence suggests a population number of at least 34 to 90,000 birds. Bones found in caves and middens, which were ancient rubbish dumps produced following human settlement, tell us that huia were only ever present in the North Island of New Zealand, but were widespread across this region. Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, revered the huia, and only those of high importance, such as chiefs, were allowed to wear their feathers. Subsequent European settlers, however, corrupted this practice, and began using feathers and beaks as fashion accessories. This fashion trade led to increased hunting of the huia, who, having developed in a world largely free of predators, had little fear of humans, and could be easily lured out by mimicked calls, and then trapped or shot. They also appeared to have been highly social birds, being found in pairs or groups. This unfortunately added to the ease in which more individuals could be killed at once. Adding to having a target on their backs from humans, clearance and destruction of their habitat, alongside the introduction of mammalian predators following colonisation, were the final pieces that sealed their fate. By 1840, huia were confined to forest at the bottom of the North Island. Later in the century, forest fires would further reduce their available habitat range. The last officially accepted sighting of a huia was in 1907 on the Mount Holdsworth track in the Tararua Ranges. However, it is likely that they held on in small numbers for some time after this with reports of now-destroyed photos being taken in 1912, and unconfirmed sightings even into the 1950s and 60s. Like its cousin, the South Island Kōkako, it would be awesome to hold out hope that maybe, someplace, somewhere, there are a few stragglers hanging on. But unfortunately, this is not the case. There are no two ways about it. This is a sad chapter, in the story of New Zealand's avifauna, fauna. But let's now turn to something positive that has immortalised it in history. The beak of the huia. Doodaloo, doodaloo, the beak shapes of male and female huia were so unlike that they were initially classified as different species by ornithologist Gould in 1837. So what is the difference? Analysis of museum specimens in some studies have suggested that the male's beak was shorter, between 5-6cm to six long versus 8-9cm to nine in females, but that it was thicker, a width of approximately 1.7cm versus 1.4cm in females. Others, however, have shown overlap, and a similar degree of length and width variation between males and females. What is not up for contention, however, is the overall shape. The bills of males were straight, whilst for the females it was down-curved in a sickle-type shape. Curvature has been reported to explain 90% of the variation in beak shape between the pair. The huia exhibited the greatest difference in beak shape between males and females of any modern bird species. Another term for this difference is sexual dimorphism. Sexual, referring to the sex of the bird, and dimorphism, referring to two different forms. Other birds also show this type of dimorphism, but the huia is the most extreme example. Of note here, other research has indicated that beak shape at birth was indifferent between the sexes, and that the change in forms occurred as the birds aged. This is also supported by the other cousins of the huia, the saddlebacks, having a straight beak shape, thus indicating this was likely the ancestral or original form of their common ancestor. So why was this a thing? Some authors have suggested that female beak growth was influenced by diet, Others have said that it may have been a sexual characteristic used in courtship. However, the leading theory is that it was related to differential methods for feeding. Listen to this account from New Zealand ornithologist Sir Walter Buller, observing two captive huia interact with a rotted log. Quote, the very different development of the mandibles in the two sexes enabled them to perform separate offices. The male always attacked the more decayed portions of the wood, chiselling out his prey after the manner of some woodpeckers, while the female probed with her long, pliant bill the other cells, where the hardness of the surrounding parts resisted the chisel of her mate. End quote. Essentially, Different tools for different jobs. By the way, apparently the terms beak and bill are interchangeable, and I like beak, so that's what I've chosen to use. So why would something like this develop? At its core, it allows for reduced competition between males and females, as they are getting their food from distinct areas. On a bigger level, being able to exploit a greater range of food sources means that a larger population number can be sustained, thus being favourable for the survival of the species. Isotopic analysis of museum specimens has suggested that although there was overlap, the diets of males and females were at least partially segregated. The male appeared to consume a wider range of prey, whereas the female was more specific. I mentioned earlier that beak dimorphism is seen in other bird species too, and whether the male or the female is the one with the larger, longer, or more curved beak can vary. However, it is most typical for it to be the male. Therefore, in the huia, we have an example of what scientists call reversed beak or bill dimorphism. The reason for this is unclear, but may be related to the types of food that the female was able to access and their role in feeding young. This is supported in other species exhibiting reversed beak dimorphism, where the female is the one that predominantly feeds the young sources of protein. Unfortunately, due to their rapid extinction following human settlement, we are unable to observe and confirm this. There is also a theory that by accessing two slightly different niches for food, the male and female could share. However, observational reports and the isotopic analysis mentioned above do not fully support this. So, we've got the what and the why, but what about the how? What ecological factors allowed for this dimorphism to occur? Well, in other species where this is present, The most striking examples are seen when there is a lack of other wood probing specialists to compete with. Islands present an ecologically diverse space that can provide niches for many species, but where access is limited due to the geographic isolation. In New Zealand, it turned out that the huia became the only wood probing specialist Other species, such as the saddleback and kaka, can get their food from this source as well, but are also adapted to be more general in their foraging strategies. This leads to reduced competition. In addition to this, other foreign wood-probing species didn't make their way to New Zealand to compete either. Thus, with the huia, we can see a brilliant example of how In the absence of competition, a single species can evolve to fill an additional niche. The huia was, and still is, an important bird, both in New Zealand culture and in our understanding of the avian world. If I could go back in time, this would be one of the birds I would most want to see. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if so, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash blurbs 439. It would mean a lot. If you'd like to know where I got my information from, this is outlined in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. dee dee blurbs.